Today, our uh, uh, profile, our biography is going to be on Ulrich Zwingli and the Reformation in Switzerland. And uh, up on the screen, hopefully you can see that, is a portrait of Ulrich Zwingli that is in a museum in Switzerland. Josiah, next slide, please. And up there you see pictured the birthplace, the home of Ulrich Zwingli's, or Huldrich. Uh, there's different uh, pronunciations and spellings for his first name. This is where he was born on January 1st, 1484. Zwingli was a leader of the Reformation in Switzerland, <clears throat> born during a time of emerging Swiss patriotism and increasing criticism of the Swiss mercenary system. We'll be talking about the mercenary system. I'll explain what that is and how it affected Switzerland and Zwingli's perspective on it. And so the Zwingli home, you can uh, see it if you go to Switzerland. It's in a town called Wildhaus in Switzerland. Josiah, next slide. So Zwingli received the same type of education that most young men of his time received, Latin grammar and rhetoric. He studied in Basel, Bern, and Vienna. Basel and Bern are in Switzerland, and Vienna is in Austria. In Bern, the Dominicans, which is a Catholic monastic order, tried to recruit Zwingli to their order, but Zwingli's father and uncle were not in favor of him joining a monastic order, so he did not join. Zwingli began studies at the University of Vienna in the winter of 1498 and continued there until 1502 when he transferred to the University of Basel where he received the Master of Arts degree in 1506. Josiah, next slide. Zwingli was ordained in Constance in Switzerland, the seat of the local diocese, and he celebrated his first mass in his hometown of Wildhaus on September 29, 1506. Now, as a young priest, he had studied little theology, but this was not considered unusual at the time. And his first ecclesiastical post then was the pastorate of the town of Glarus, where he stayed for 10 years. But it was in Glarus, whose soldiers were used as mercenaries in Europe, that Zwingli became involved in politics. Switzerland in Zwingli's day was not a unified nation as it is today. <clears throat> like Germany at this time, Switzerland was divided up into small political entities that were largely self-governing. Now, the unusual thing about Switzerland, if, if you don't know much about Switzerland, I encourage you to, you know, you can get on the internet. There's lots of resources that will help you study Switzerland. Switzerland was a very unusual country at this time because it did not have, like most European nations, kings or an aristocracy that ruled in a feudal system, kind of a hierarchical top-down. 
it was very democratic and the way Swiss people governed themselves at that time would not seem unusual to us today, but at that time in history, it was extremely unusual. The Swiss Confederation in Huldrych Zwingli's time consisted of 13 states or cantons, as well as affiliated areas and common lordships. So in much the same way that the United States is a group of, of individual states that are united to form one nation, uh, so the Swiss cantons, uh, even though each canton was self-governing, they did bond together to form a confederation. Now this relative independence served as the basis for conflict during the time of the Reformation when the various cantons divided between different confessional camps. Josiah, next slide. So here you can see a map of Switzerland and it, it's a little bit hard to read because everything is in German. But I think it does give you an idea of what Switzerland was like at this time. This is, uh, you know, the total land mass is not very much, you know, spread across a flat map. But of course, Switzerland is a mountain country. And so each little uh, canton, uh, again, largely self-governing. And um, because of the mountainous, um, regions, it was difficult to have a lot of communication between the cantons. So each canton, even though they were joined in this loose federation, each canton had very different characteristics in terms of the customs of the people living in those cantons. Next slide, please. Now, up to the time of the Reformation, France had been politically powerful over Switzerland. Switzerland was nomal, nominally a part of the Holy Roman Empire. And if you recall from our talks on Luther, um, the Holy Roman Empire was, um, you could kind of think of it as the European Union of its day. Individual nations, but overarching was one central government through this Holy Roman Empire. And even though technically Switzerland was a part of this, um, again, the cantons were largely self-governing. And so Switzerland by 1499, just on the, in the beginning stages of the Reformation, was essentially independent. Now, Swiss mercenaries called Rieslaufer were notable for their service in foreign armies especially the armies of the kings of France from the later Middle Ages, beginning in the 1200s, into the Age of the Enlightenment in the 1700s. So if you think about how Europe was during this period, again, there were princes, there were kings, there were rulers over various areas, and the aristocracy in those areas would pledge loyalty or fealty to the king or the prince, so in a time of war, if the king summoned his knights to go out and fight in battle, they would have to gather armies. But Switzerland didn't have this kind of a feudal system. So there were a lot of Swiss men, and you know, when you live in the mountains, you don't do a lot of farming. 
So there were a lot of Swiss men who learned that they could hire themselves out, hired soldiers is what a mercenary actually is. They could hire themselves out to different countries, different kings, and fight in battles and be paid by those kings. And uh, Swiss, um, even today we think of the Swiss army as a formidable foe, and indeed it still is. And I believe if I'm correct, even today, um, every man in Switzerland is required to give, I believe, at least two years of service to the army. And, uh, you know, if you think about the Swiss army knife, the Swiss were formidable fighters and they were, uh, they were designed, you know, if you, if you had a contingent of Swiss fighters in your army, uh, they would be very fierce and you would be, you know, if you were a king waging battle against another kingdom and you had a lot of Swiss mercenaries, you were almost assured of victory. However, Zwingli was opposed, as were many Swiss, to the hire of Swiss men as soldiers for foreign wars. Next slide. Zwingli served as a chaplain for Swiss mercenaries for several campaigns in Italy. With ever-shifting alliances between the French, the Papal States, and the Habsburgs, he became convinced that mercenary service was immoral and that Swiss unity was indispensable for any future achievements. So, uh, you know, if, if you don't know a whole lot about the history of Europe at this time, of course, there was the Kingdom of France, and the Papal States referred to individual small kingdoms in Italy that were allied with the Pope. And because there was so much of a, a mixture between religion and politics in this era, you know, if the Pope wanted to, you know, conduct a crusade, wage a war, fight any of the kingdoms of Europe, he could summon uh, an army, essentially, and command them to go fight. The Habsburgs were a ruling uh, political dynasty, kings, princes, dukes, and other aristocrats who intermarried with other kings, princes, and dukes of uh nobility in Europe, and they ruled various parts of Europe. Uh, but Zwingli was very, w believed this Swiss mercenary system was bad, it was immoral, and the Swiss needed to just stop doing this. Many Swiss felt as Zwingli did about the mercenary system, and there was a growing sense of the need for a united Switzerland, uh, with the different cantons forming a closer federation. Next slide. Now, religious differences played a role as well, with some cantons adhering to the Roman Catholic Church and some cantons embracing the Reformation. Among other influences, Wingley was exposed to the works of the Dutch scholar Erasmus and the ideas of humanism that were circulating throughout Europe. After serving as chaplain to Swiss mercenaries, Zwingli moved to a pastorate in Glarus in eastern Switzerland. Zwingli's time as the pastor of Glarus and Einsiedeln was characterized by inner growth and development. He perfected his Greek and he took up the study of Hebrew. 
Next slide. Zwingli's library contained over 300 volumes from which he was able to draw upon classical authors, uh, for example, Homer, Virgil, you know, the classic Greek and Roman writers, patristics, or the writings of the early church fathers, and the scholastic works of medieval and uh, Reformation and Renaissance scholars. He exchanged scholarly letters with a circle of Swiss humanists and began to study the writings of Erasmus. Again, remember, this is at the time when the printing press is really getting going and books are much cheaper and much more easy to obtain than they had been previously. So even though Zwingli, you know, he certainly wasn't a wealthy man, but even he was able to have a large library. Swingley took the opportunity to meet him while Erasmus was in Basel between August 1514 and May 1516. Zwingli's turn to relative pacifism and his focus on preaching can be traced to the influence of Erasmus. In late 1518, Zwingli was offered the pastorate of the Grossmünster in Zurich, a very important church. Next slide. And here I think you can see pretty well uh, a photograph of the Grossmünster in Zurich. It's still there. You can go to Zurich, Switzerland and um, see this church. And it was a very important church in Switzerland. On January 1st, 1519, Zwingli gave his first sermon in Zurich. But Zwingli did not follow the usual practice of basing a sermon on the gospel lesson of a particular Sunday. Instead, he began to read through the Gospel of Matthew, giving his interpretation during the sermon known as the method of Lectio Continua. Next slide. He continued to read and interpret Matthew's gospel on subsequent Sundays until he reached the end. He used Erasmus's New Testament for his text. He then proceeded in the same manner with the Acts of the Apostles, the New Testament epistles, and finally, the Old Testament. But this kind of expository teaching given to lay people was very unusual in Zwingli's day. He was almost conducting it like you would uh, take a class in a seminary, going through whole books of the Bible. It assumed that with the pastor's help, the laity could hear and understand the scriptures as well as any scholar, monk, or priest. Next slide. Zwingli's theological stance was gradually revealed through his sermons. He attacked moral corruption, and in the process, he named individuals who were the targets of his denunciations. So he, from the pulpit, he was calling individual actual people out, um, probably church leaders among them. Monks in particular were accused of indolence or laziness and high living. So of course, monks were supposed to um, many of the, the monastic orders uh, had the monks take vows of poverty. 
However, many monks lived in luxury. In 1519, Zwingli specifically rejected the veneration or worship of saints and called for the need to distinguish between their true and fictional accounts. So many people, perhaps, you know, some, some superstitions kind of mixed in, would take the actual accounts of, of saints' lives, embellish them, add to them so that, you know, a saint wasn't just a human being anymore. <laughs> he was almost supernatural. Zwingli cast doubts on the idea of hellfire. He asserted that unbaptized children were not damned, and he questioned the power of excommunication. Sorry if that slide, <laughs> that slide's a little off there. But soon Zwingli was to confront the controversy over indulgences, just as Martin Luther had. Within the Diocese of Constance, a man by the name of Bernardin Sanson from the Roman Catholic Church was offering a special indulgence for contributors to the building of St. Peter's in Rome. And who is this starting to remind us of? It's starting to remind us of Jan Eck, or rather uh, John Tetzel, sorry, in Germany and, you know, the... Um, uh, when a coin in the coffer springs, a, a, a soul from purgatory springs. Um, so it was the, really the same thing because, um, you know, the, the Pope wanting to build St. Peter's and he needed a lot of money to do it, was sending his emissaries throughout Europe and Switzerland was no exception. When Sanson arrived at the gates of Zurich at the end of January 1519, parishioners prompted Zwingli with questions. Zwingli responded with displeasure that the people were not being properly informed about the conditions of the indulgence and were being induced to part with their money on false pretenses. Next slide. Now this occurred over a year after Martin Luther had published his 95 theses. Re recall that that was in October 31st, 1517. So the Council of Zurich refused Sanson entry into the city as the authorities in Rome were anxious to contain the fire started by Luther. The Bishop of Constance denied any support of Sanson and he was recalled. But in August 1519, Zurich was struck by an outbreak of the plague, during which at least one in four persons died. All of those who could afford it left the city, but Zwingli remained and continued his pastoral duties. Next slide. In September, he caught the disease and nearly died. He described his preparation for death in a poem. Zwingli's pest lead, or pest song, consisting of three parts, the onset of the illness, the closeness to death, and the joy of recovery. A portion of the first part reads, thy purpose fulfill, nothing can be too severe for me. I am thy vessel for you to make whole or break to pieces. Since if you take hence my spirit from this earth, 
You do it so that it will not grow evil and will not mar the pious lives of others. So in a sense, he was, he was resigned to, to death if, if he did not survive this plague. He did survive, of course, um, but after the plague had subsided, there was a public controversy regarding Zwingli's preaching, and it broke out during the season of Lent in 1522. On the first fasting Sunday in Lent of that year, March 9th, Zwingli and about a dozen other participants consciously transgressed the fasting rule by cutting and distributing two smoked sausages. Now that doesn't seem terribly revolutionary to us, but for Zwingli's time, it truly was. Zwingli defended this act in a sermon, which was published on April 16th with the title, Regarding the Choice and Freedom of Foods. Next slide. Following this event, Zwingli and other humanist friends petitioned the bishop on July 2nd to abolish the requirement of celibacy on the clergy. Two weeks later, the petition was reprinted for the public in German, titled A Friendly Petition and Admonition to the Confederates. The issue was not just an abstract problem for Zwingli, as he had secretly married a widow, Anna Reinhardt, earlier in the year. Their cohabitation was well known, and their public wedding took place on April 2nd, 1524, three months before the birth of their first child. So I'm sure at that time, Anna Reinhardt Zwingli was far along in the pregnancy and probably looked very pregnant when they were married. Next slide. Ulrich and Anna would go on to have four children, Regula, William, Huldrich, and Anna. As the petition was addressed to the secular authorities, as well as the church, the bishop responded at the same level by notifying the Zurich government to maintain the ecclesiastical order. So in effect, the bishop is saying to the civil government of Zurich, you know, stand with me, help me maintain the rules that the church has laid down. Other Swiss clergymen joined in Zwingli's cause, which encouraged him to make his first major statement of faith, Apologeticus Architeles, the first and last word. Zwingli had to defend himself against charges of heresy and disorder. He denied the church hierarchy had any right to judge on matters of church order because they were corrupt. Sounds like a good argument to me. <laughs> Next slide. Tension grew between church and civil leaders regarding the Reformation in Switzerland and Zwingli's teachings. Two disputations took place between Zwingli and his supporters on the one hand and the opponents of the Reformation on the other. So if you recall from our talk about Luther, a disputation was essentially a debate. Um, and it would normally take place uh, among scholars, monks, priests, church leaders, and so forth. 
The first disputations Wingley was involved in took place on January 3rd, 1523. The Zurich City Council invite, now think of, let me stop for just, the Zur, I just said the Zurich City Council. This is the 1500s. Switzerland was truly unique. When we were talking about Martin Luther, and as you know, later on we'll talk about other reformers like Calvin, where are you going to find a city council of a city in Europe that's going to be in charge of affairs and running things? There's no kings involved here. There's, you know, there aren't, uh, there, there are bishops invited to this, but um, they didn't really show up. Um, there were some representatives from the Roman Catholic Church, but the, the kinds of people taking place and, and watching this disputation, this was truly unique um, within Europe at this time. So the city council invited the clergy of the city and the outlying region to a meeting to allow the factions to present their opinions. The bishop was invited to attend or send a representative. Now, um, not much was resolved at this first disputation. The decision of the Zurich City Council, again, the City Council, was that Zwingli would be allowed to continue his preaching and that all other preachers should teach only in accordance with Scripture. Which sounds nice on paper, but that could be a lot more difficult in practice. Now, in September of 1523, iconoclasm broke out in Zurich. And again, if you remember from our talk about, talks about Luther, iconoclasm is the, um, the belief and the actions that follow along with that belief that religious um, works of art that portray uh, Christ, uh, the apostles, Mary, the saints, and so on, all of these religious works of art are not correct. They should not be a part of worship. So uh, in many places, the iconoclasts were seeking to destroy religious artworks in churches. But again, the Zurich City Council decided to work out the matter of images in a second disputation. So again, think about this. This is very unusual that a civil government entity, in this case, the city council, is going to deal with what we would think of as purely religious matters, um, and they're, but they're doing it in what is really a very democratic way for that time and place. The essence of the mass and its sacrificial character was also included as a subject of discussion. So here they are beginning to question, what does the Mass or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper actually mean? How do we explain what happens in the Lord's Supper? Supporters of the Mass claimed that the Eucharist was a true sacrifice, while Zwingli claimed that it was a commemorative meal. Next slide. As in the first disputation, an invitation was sent out to the Zurich clergy and the Bishop of Constance. At the second disputation, the lay people of Zurich 
Again, this is revolutionary. Nowhere else in Europe is this kind of thing taking place where ordinary people are coming to this disputation between church leaders and political leaders. The diocese of Chur and Basel, other parts of Switzerland, representatives from the University of Basel and the 12 members of the Confederation, so representatives from the Swiss Confederation, were also invited. About 900 persons attended this meeting, but neither the bishop nor the Confederation in the end sent any representatives. The disputation started on October 26, 1523, and lasted two days. And again, compared to the disputations that took place in Germany with Luther, this one was very democratic. Next slide. Now, uh, we come to the conflict with the Anabaptists. Later, uh, not today, but in... in um, following talks, we will get into the Anabaptist movement in Europe at this time, and we'll be talking about different major figures in the Anabaptist movement. But here um, on the slide, you see a picture of a man by the name of Conrad Grebel. Now, Zwingli came into conflict with emerging leaders of what would come to be known as the Anabaptist movement or the rebaptize movement. Conrad Grebel, leader of the Swiss Brethren, favored abolishing the mass altogether and baptizing only adults and not infants. There were other parts of Anabaptist um, theology that we don't have time to get into here. We will discuss that in future talks. Zwingli sought a compromise wherein the radicals as they were called, would stay in fellowship with the reformers. The reformers continued to recognize the legitimacy of the civil government, but the radicals refused to do so. Next slide. The Swiss Federation of Cantons began to fracture along religious lines. The Christian Civic Union was formed in 1528 initially among the cities of Bern, Constance, and Zurich, which were reformed. Now, previously, the five cantons of Lucerne, Uri, Schwyz, Unterwalden, and Zug had formed the five states, which remained Catholic, in 1524. As the Reformation spread throughout Switzerland, the five states felt increasingly threatened and reached out to Catholic Austria for support. Aust even though we probably won't talk much about Austria, through this period, Austria remained largely Roman Catholic. Next slide. War was declared among these groups of cantons on June 8, 1529. And this became known as the First Couple War. Zurich was able to raise an army of 30,000 men, and again, Zurich was Protestant or Reformed. The five states which were Catholic were abandoned by Austria and could raise only 9,000 men. The two forces met near Kappel, 
but war was averted due to the intervention of Hans Ebley, a relative of Zwingli who pleaded for an armistice. Switzerland looked to Zwingli for the leadership to establish a peaceful settlement. Zwingli advocated for favorable terms for reformed cantons, but there was little actual resolution. The split between the Catholics and the Protestants in Switzerland continued. Next slide. Okay, so now we come to the Marburg Colloquy in 1529. While Zwingli carried on the political work of the Swiss Reformation, he developed his theological views with, or sometimes in spite of, his colleagues. The famous disagreement between Martin Luther and Zwingli concerned the interpretation of the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper. Andreas Karlstadt, Luther's former colleague from Wittenberg, published three pamphlets on the subject in which he argued that there was no real presence in the elements. And by real presence, we mean the real presence of Christ in the elements. Next slide. The idea of the real presence in the elements refers to the doctrine that Jesus is really or substantially present in the Eucharist, not merely symbolically or metaphorically. And recall in Roman Catholic theology, uh, when the priest elevates the bread and the wine, they turn into the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's the belief among Roman Catholics. Reformed and, uh, reformed and uh, other thinkers of this period that are breaking away from Roman, the Roman Catholic Church are beginning to reassess what they think about exactly what happens when we take the Lord's Supper. Karlstad's pamphlets, published in Basel in 1524, received the approval of Johannes Ecolampadius and Zwingli. Ecolampadius was another reformer. He was German, um, but um, he had a lot of discourse and uh, conversation with Luther and other reformers, as well as Zwingli. Luther rejected Karlstadt's arguments and considered Zwingli primarily to be a partisan of Karlstadt. Zwingli took a much different approach than the traditional Roman Catholic uh, approach and different from what Luther believed as well. Luther said that Christ had, had ascended to heaven and was sitting at the Father's right hand, so Christ's humanity could not be in two places at once. How can bread and wine turn into the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Because after all, we know Christ is in heaven. Next slide. Unlike his divinity, Zwingli reasoned, Christ's human body was not omnipresent. It could not be everywhere at once. And so it could not be in heaven and, and at the same time be present in the elements. By spring of 1527, Luther reacted strongly to Zwingli's views in Luther's work that these words of Christ, this is my body, etc., still stand firm 
against the fanatics, which was the term he was using to describe people like Zwingli who were moving even further away uh, from an under, understanding of the Eucharist that Luther had. The controversy continued until 1528 when efforts to build bridges began the Lutheran and the Zwinglian views began. Next slide. Martin Bucer, a German Reformed theologian, tried to mediate. Philip of Hesse, a German Protestant ruler who wanted to form a political coalition of all Protestant forces, invited the two parties to Marburg, Germany to discuss their differences. Zwingli accepted Philip's invitation, fully believing that he would be able to convince Luther. In contrast, Luther did not expect anything to come out of the meeting and had to be urged by Philip to attend. Next slide. Zwingli, accompanied by Echolampadius, arrived on September 28, 1529 in Marburg with Luther and Philip Melanchthon arriving shortly thereafter. Other theologians also participated, including Martin Busser, Andreas Osiander, Johannes Brenz, and Justus Jonas. The debates were held from October 1st through the 4th, and the results were published in the 15 Marburg articles. The participants were able to agree on 14 of the articles, but the 15th article established the differences in their views on the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Next slide. As one 21st century theology professor has described it, on this issue, they parted without having reached an agreement. Both Luther and Zwingli agreed that the bread in the supper was a sign. For Luther, however, that which the bread signified, namely the body of Christ, was present in, with, and under the sign itself. For Zwingli, though, sign and things signified were separated by a distance, the width between heaven and earth. For Zwingli, the idea of literally eating the body of Christ was abhorrent. But Luther put, quote, the chief point of salvation in physically eating the body of Christ, unquote, for he connected it with the forgiveness of sins. Next slide. The same motive that had moved Zwingli so strongly to oppose images or icons, the invocation of saints and baptismal regeneration was present also in the struggle over the supper, the fear of idolatry. Are we actually going to worship the elements of the mass? Salvation was by Christ alone, through faith alone, not through faith and bread. The object of faith was that which is not seen, Hebrews 11.1, 1, and which therefore cannot be eaten except again in a non-literal figurative sense. 
To eat the body and to drink the blood of Christ in the supper then simply meant for Zwingli to have the body and blood of Christ present in the mind. Next slide. The failure to find agreement resulted in strong emotions on both sides. When the two sides departed, Zwingli cried out in tears, there are no people on earth with whom I would rather be at one with than the Lutheran Wittenbergers. At the end of the meetings, Zwingli and Martin Bucer reached forward their hands to shake Luther's hand, but Luther refused to shake hands. Because of these differences, Luther initially refused to even acknowledge Zwingli and his followers as Christians and refused to accept them as part of the Reformation. Next slide. Now, Zwingli would undoubtedly have welcomed agreement with Luther for political as well as theological reasons, for he saw a growing danger in the isolation of the reforming Swiss cantons. The forest cantons, which were Catholic, had organized themselves against the alliance, which was Protestant, and there was a real threat of imperial intervention from the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor, rather. In offensive defense, the, the Catholic alliance attacked the forest cantons at Capel, again, another Capel War, which was 16 kilometers south of Zurich in 1529 and enforced terms on the opposing districts. Next slide. Attempts also were made to link up with Strasbourg and allied reforming cities, but these were at first unsuccessful despite the help of Philip of Hesse. The results of division were seen at the Diet of Augsburg of 1530, in which different evangelical groups, Zwingli's among them, presented three different confessions including Zwingli's Fide Ratio. Lacking other friends, Zwingli turned to Venice and France, partly in view of their political hostility to the Holy Roman Empire, and partly in the hope of persuading the rulers, both Venice and France were predominantly Catholic, to accept evangelical views. Next slide. His Exposition of the Faith in 1531 was addressed to Francis I of France to clear up misunderstandings and enlist his sympathy. The project faded, however, Francis really wasn't interested, and in 1531, Zwingli urged on the alliance a further reduction of the forest canton. So it was back to war in Switzerland between the Protestant and Catholic cantons. Zwingli's alliance applied an unsuccessful food and economic blockade on the Catholic cantons. But this simply provoked the foresters, the Catholics, to attack Zurich in October 1531, and thus began the Second War of Capel. Next slide. And this slide, unfortunately, is, is somewhat dark. Um, uh, it, this this is a picture um, taken from um, the Wikipedia article on Zwingli, so you can look look that article up. 
uh, in Wikipedia, and you can see this picture much better. But um, this is portraying Zwingli uh, lying at the foot of a tree, about to be killed. So in the Second War of Capel, Zwingli accompanied the Zurich forces as chaplain and was killed in the battle, the spot where he fell being now marked by an inscribed boulder. Next slide. And so to assess Zwingli's legacy, Zwingli was a humanist and a scholar with many devoted friends and disciples. He communicated as easily with the ordinary people of his congregation as with rulers such as Philip of Hesse. Although he had a reputation as a stern, stolid reformer, he had an excellent sense of humor and used satiric fables, spoofing, and puns in his writings. He was more conscious of social obligations than was Luther, and he genuinely believed that the masses would accept, next slide, a government guided by God's word. He tirelessly promoted assistance to the poor, whom he believed should be cared for by a truly Christian community. Outside of Switzerland, no church counts Zwingli as its founder. We don't have Zwinglian churches like we have Lutheran churches. Scholars speculate as to why Zwinglianism has not diffused more widely, even though Zwingli's theology is considered the first expression of Reformed theology by some. Although his name is not as widely recognized as Luther's, Zwingli's legacy lives on in the basic confessions of the Reformed churches today. He is often called, after Martin Luther and John Calvin, the third man of the Reformation. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation of the life and the work of Ulrich Zwingli. Um, I personally am very glad I did this study because I knew absolutely nothing about him or very little uh, before I started. Um, I hope you know more after hearing this than what you knew at the beginning. Um, there are many resources, of course, on the inter internet, um, both uh, scholarly writings and um, works uh, that are accessible really to anyone about the life and work of Ulrich Swingley, I'd encourage you to do some research and learn more about this really very courageous man. Thank you.